There's a certain um, irony in this that becomes apparent maybe to us in this kind of practice, which is that the things we most care about, the things that are most central to this practice, the the things that our heart is most longing for, we don't really need to worry about or take care of. We certainly don't need to try and uh, manufacture them. Peace. Love. Wisdom. Presence. Sensitivity. Truthfulness. Understanding. Kind of deep trust in life. These things are actually the natural domain of the free, of a free life. We can't manufacture them if we try. Therein is the irony, you know, the irony of the struggle to feel peaceful. I'm trying my best to feel peaceful. natural activity of the of a liberated mind it means a mind freed of its clutter its doubt and distractions natural activity of a liberated mind is to conceive wisely to understand clearly the natural activity of a liberated heart, a heart unencumbered, freed of its neediness, its wounds and armouring. Natural response is to love, to care, to respond, to be deeply sensitive to what's happening, to feel life, in a way that may be, well, that is, beyond the imaginings, beyond the imaginings of the restricted heart. has to be beyond our imaginings. The capacities of heart and mind that are available actually to us, that are the the freeing up and the fulfilment of this practice, are unimaginable. We can't imagine an experience we've never had. You can't imagine the taste of a fruit that you've never tasted. You can't. Someone might describe it to us, but we can't. We can't imagine an experience we've never had. Imagine a color that you've never seen. can't do it. Imagine a quality of heart freer than that you've ever experienced. Can't. And yet, sometimes in the moments maybe of grace, 
we could call it, that some of you have been describing over the last days. We notice ourselves touching into, experiencing new, unimagined territory of our heart. New and unimagined capacities for sensitivity. For a sense of inclusion in or intimacy with life. Previously unimaginable qualities of clarity of mind. The capacity to understand in a way that we've not understood before. So, the good news is, we don't need to worry about peace and freedom and ease. What we need to take care of is the rest. We like to um, practice wisdom and compassion and love and these kind of noble, beautiful sounding things. But in a very real way, those things will take care of themselves if we take care of the other stuff. The stuff that ordinarily we'd rather actually turn away from. The pettiness. The anxiety. The confusion. We'd like to say, oh, we went on retreat. It was all about love and peace and wisdom. I've been practicing love and peace and wisdom. Sounds fantastic. And the kind of shiny halo that we get (laughs) from that. Rather than going home and saying, oh, uh, I've been on retreat for a week uh, practicing pettiness and greed and jealousy. (laughs) (laughs) But pettiness and greed and jealousy and anxiety and, uh, and all the rest... Don't get purified by trying to fit ourselves in to a facsimile of freedom. By trying to act wise. They get freed up through the honesty and the sincerity and the authentic goodness of our practice in being willing to turn in their direction, to turn fearwards. So if there's some emphasis this week, if there's some emphasis generally, sometimes Buddhism generally is, is kind of accused of being rather miserable. If there's some emphasis on turning fearwards towards the 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 painful aspects of our life. It's that emphasis is born out of the understanding that it's in the liberation of these very things that love and truth and depth and beauty and wisdom and a free relationship with life can truly flourish.
what's our experience then? Our experience that often feels constrained or constricted in some way. And that tendency we have in the midst of constrained and constricted experience to think something's wrong. It shouldn't be like this. You might notice for yourself the tendency to compare the difficulties that you encounter in your own heart and mind with some ideal, some vision of them not being there. Something that suggests there's something wrong with me, that these things are going on. Why me? Why me? Why this? Why that? Why this history? Why this relationship? Why this problem? Why those parents? Why etc., etc.? It can be quite relieving, it can be balm, in fact, to us, to realize that there's nothing wrong with us, that we've experienced a distracted mind and a wounded heart and a a kind of defensive nervous system. It's normal. Actually, we've done phenomenally well to get this far. Phenomenally well to have have managed to evolve a kind of a fully functional, more or less, human adult form with a more or less functional sense of self that's able to interact with the world. If we really understand the marvel that this is, this thinking, feeling, acting, moving, all singing, all dancing, adult human, we might say, wow, hey, I've done pretty good. And yet we might also, which is why we're here, intuit the possibility of a whole lot more of a way of being that's not, as we were exploring sometimes last, <coughs> exploring last night, which is sometimes misunderstood in Buddhism, <coughs> not about the effacing of the self or the getting rid of the self, but rather a kind of expansion or evolution way beyond the limitations of only being able to meet life in terms of this and that, me and you, here and there, self and world. And from this basic intuition of the possibility of a wider, deeper, freer way of meeting life comes the willingness to address whatever seems to be in the way of wider, deeper, freer. Whatever seems to be in the way of truly clear mind, a truly unencumbered heart, a truly undefended nervous system. And what seems to be in the way of those things is the various layers of our experience. They sometimes can feel like very compacted layers 
of what we've been exploring the last couple of days of, as our mental and emotional and physical experience. And I say layers because that seems to be the way our experience is built up, one thing on another. The Buddha used this uh, lovely Pali word, papancha, which literally means piling up, pointing to the fact that a lot of our experience is a pile-up. Piling up ideas with emotions, with stories, with history, with reactions, until we get a pile, a compacted, lumpen sense of what's going on in here. And as our our capacity for presence, for um, kind of clear perception, for insight grows, we start to be able to see into this layering of our experience. And at any point, at any layer, it doesn't matter how far down the tunnel we've gone, to use that image of a tunnel we used previously, It doesn't matter how much piling up there's been. At whatever point that we see clearly into some aspect of the process, liberation happens. Some kind of liberation, some kind of freeing up, some kind of of unraveling of that piece of the puzzle, that compacted layer. I'll try, I'll give an example of what I mean. And of course, we could take from, you know, the 10 million examples. Just in our, just in being here, sitting quietly, meditation, the intention towards presence, openness, relaxation, care. Breathing's coming in, breathing's going out. All is well in the world. And then into this field of experience comes anything. Some of you have been astonished by just the kinds of anything that can pop in. So just some memory, for example, arises. If there's sufficient, or if there's a quality of insight, insight remember, just means seeing clearly, a quality of seeing clearly based on some kind of poise and a degree of attention, or of stability of attention, that's able to recognize a memory arising. If there's enough clear seeing there, we know a memory for a memory. It's not a big uh, cosmic insight. Very simple insight. Oh, memory. That's it. Don't need to go there. Don't need to make a big deal out of it. Oh, no, it's a memory. Sometimes that very simple kind of um, 
tiny recognition is a moment, not, not in a big bang flash way, in a very simple way, but a genuine, genuine moment of freedom. A freedom to abide here, recognizing what's taken birth in the moment, called a memory, knowing its arrival, its little hurrah, and it's fading away. Like a bubble in a stream, like a drop in a lake, like a bird song in a vast open sky. Just that. Sometimes, though, there isn't enough (coughs) presence or clarity to recognize the memory just as the memory. And so what tends to happen is next layer of our experience. So that might be that, oh, oh, yes, I remember when. And off we go. At which point we might notice if there's enough clarity, enough presence, we might notice that process of the mind forming itself into a certain shape, attention getting identified with a memory. And the way we start to form all kinds of things. I mean, there's actually a whole bunch of different stages in which insight can arise there. There's the way time gets formed, the sense of time in terms of memory and past. There's the way the sense of self starts to get formed there in terms of the relationship of our me and that thing I was doing, etc., etc. At any point in that, if there's enough clarity and presence, there's enough seeing clearly, we recognize, oh, We recognize the world of self taking birth, the process of selfing going along, fed by the memory. And to the extent that we see that clearly, we can just recognize that as what we've been calling the kind of dynamic movement of phenomena. Don't need to take it as the whole truth of things. Don't need to get so caught up in it that it becomes more real than the immediacy which is actually supporting our being right now. And that's it. Simple. But maybe there's not enough clarity, not a stability, and so it kind of the next layer gets added on. Which might be whatever emotional charge is associated with that memory. Might be some memory of some, um, some, some event that happened where we felt hurt, unfairly treated. And so we start the papancha, the building up, the piling up of layers starts to get more seeming, more seeming solidity to it as we get more invested. Not just as a memory, but now a memory affected by emotional charge. The hurt that's there. Oh, it's true and it wasn't fair. Now at this point, if 
kind of clarity dawns, if we remember presence, if there's enough clear seeing, we might recognize that, mo- that emotional charge, the sense of hurt, the way it maybe has got a kind of grip in our chest, the way we're getting caught up with it. And we might notice, oh, a sensation in the chest. All oh, right, experiencing hurt in relation to that memory. Oh, yeah, I can really feel that. And as we let ourselves feel it in the chest, as we give space to it, like we've been exploring, whatever we give space to starts to open up. The layers start to unravel. Simple. But if there's not enough presence to recognize what's going on, we tend to add more layers. We go down that road of hurt and, or, and regret or resentment or, uh, or whatever way we build up the story. There's a whole bunch more layers. But if we picked apart every layer of even a single thought stream, we'd be here all night. So we go on building up layers until at some point... the immediacy of life reasserts itself in our consciousness. Which is a kind of clearer way of saying what we usually say, oh, I I woke up, I became aware. We like to take the credit for becoming aware. We say, oh yes, I, I got caught up but I became aware. As if I did something about it. Actually, I didn't do anything. I was too busy being caught up and feeling hurt and self righteous and all the rest of it. But at some, but life's immediacy is infinitely more powerful than my little petty stories. And so however invested I get, however caught up I get, sooner or later I'm reminded, oh, I was just caught up in a memory. There might be all kinds of charge left over. There might be feelings of resentment. There might be whatever else is going along. But life's reasserted its, its immediacy in such a way that I recognize I've been caught up. That's one of the most powerful moments for insight. One of the most important moments, certainly in meditation. The moment of realizing that you've been caught up somewhere. Now the good news in that is if you find you've been getting caught up hundreds of times then you've got hundreds of the most important moments when you realize you've been caught up. And I mean that really very truly. How we relate to the moment of waking up directly um, dictates the freedom of our meeting with life. If there's enough presence, enough clear seeing, supported, like we've been exploring, supported by gentleness, by trust, by a willingness to look, by a willingness to allow, then we might have that clear insight that life's reasserted itself. 
that the previous ten minutes I've been lost in that memory are utterly irrelevant. They're gone. Finished. No way to recover that time. No way to make any difference whatsoever to that last ten minutes. Try. Try now. Try going to fiddle around with what happened today. You can't. So if there's some real clear seeing there, we recognize, oh, here. Here it is. Here's life. Here's body. Here's heart. Here's mind. What's here? There might be some residue that's here from what's been going on the last ten minutes. There might be some leftover feelings of hurt or resentment, or whatever it was, that really need our attention, letting ourselves explore that. The the important insight is the fact that, oh, here, is infinitely more real than whatever I was caught up in. And that insight allows us to come back fully, willingly, brightly, spaciously. Simple. But if there's not enough presence, if there's not any clarity, how easily that moment, that precious, important moment where life's reasserted its immediacy gets covered over by the next layer. Oh, where was, what, what, what was I thinking about? Where did I go? What was I... Where, where, where? Some, a kind of panic that sets in. We were speaking the other night about this kind of fearful relationship we have with ourselves. And often the fearful relationship shows up as a kind of panic. It's very, very, very subtle. Probably no one else would notice. But because, like we were saying today, this is life under the microscope, if we look carefully we're able to notice it as a kind of <coughs> panic. It's not just about where was I, but it's where should I have been. Some sense of a kind of either a guilt for having not been present in meditation, a kind of sheepishly thinking I ought to get back on the case, or a kind of, well, I kind of ought to get back on the case, but I'm so invested in that thought, I'm just going to let myself kind of grind it around a few more times. (laughs) If there's some clarity, if there's some steadiness, if there's some uh, clear seeing in that moment, we can really start recognizing the attitude with which we meet the fact of being brought back to presence. Very, very useful to notice the attitude which we habitually bring to the fact of having been woken up to life. Whether it's an attitude of a kind of panic or disorientation or some kind of guilty thing. Oh, 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 I've been doing it wrong. I've been doing something wrong. I ought to come back. Or whether it's some kind of reluctance to come back. Somewhere we think it might be a good idea. 
but uh, there's a kind of being drawn off, a kind of being, wanting to be seduced. Either seduced because the thought we were having, the memory we were having was kind of pleasant, or even we feel attracted to being seduced by the unpleasant memories. Some mistaken idea that we can work out the problem by replaying the story for the million and one time. It didn't work the previous million times, but I, maybe if I just replay it again with yet another scenario of how it could have been different, maybe this time. I think I, re- I, think I read a definition once of stupidity which is doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different result. (laughs) Or maybe slightly more kindly expressed. There's that lovely story with uh, Mullah Nasruddin, where he's found eating a great pile of hot chilies. And he's burning up, and he's sweating profusely, and he's kind of uh, really agitated, and just keeps taking another one. And the person said, Mullah, what are you doing? Why do you keep eating all these hot chilies? He says, I keep hoping the next one will be sweet. (laughs) So at some point, and we could go on and on and on, I have already gone on, I've been there for half an hour, Tracking the various layers. And we actually didn't go very far. I thought when I might explore this, I thought I might go uh, much further. But all we've gone is the distance of one thought. And what we've seen in there is many layers. And also, most significantly, many opportunities for insight. Many opportunities for insight. Any one of which starts to really work on our habitual sense of ourself, our habitual sense of our stories, our habitual sense of, of how, to, how we react to things in a way that's clarifying, that's liberating. Sometimes in this kind of practice, insight can seem like something obscure, something far away. Often insight seems to be something kind of loaded where it needs, uh, it implies something kind of cosmic in some way. Something that implies a vastly altered uh, state. Something that implies kind of, you know, wisdom streaming down from the heavens in some way. We don't think necessarily of the opportunity for liberating understanding in, in many different ways during the course of one flow of the mind called a memory. So insight moves in different ways. Sometimes we see something about the way we've been reacting where in the seeing of it, we know the freedom from it. That's why the Buddha says, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. 
And we might think, well, that sounds like two things. And he says, one thing and one thing only. And he emphasizes it as that because where we really meet the suffering, where we really recognize the suffering, where we really give space to the suffering, that's where we find the resolution of it, the liberation of it. Sometimes in the moment of seeing, might be that moment of really noticing, my goodness, when life brings me back to presence, I have this kind of reaction of feeling guilty, of having been away. Sometimes we see things with enough clarity where the effect of the insight is we know unshakably in that moment our freedom from it. And from then on, there's a qualitative difference in that area of our life. And it's as clear as night to day, one moment to the next. One's seen that uh, habit of mind with so much clarity that it's, it's, it's kind of blown it away. It doesn't have the power left to keep getting a grip on the mind. And from that moment, the process of coming back to presence is a free one. One unladen by guilt. One uncorrupted by a sense of something being wrong. That's one of the ways insight functions in that kind of night-to-day difference in one moment. Sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes we see something clearly and well, and we start to understand something about our habitual patterns or tendencies with something. And one knows the truth of it. One knows. Not that it's a good idea. Not that it's all maybe that's happening. One knows clearly that one's seen what's going on in a truer or clearer way. But the habit energy that's been built up over years and years is strong. And so it keeps on coming back. And we may have to cover the same territory many, many, many times. And yet, as we look back, even if it think, we see, seem like we've been going over the same territory again and again, we look back and we see, wow, that thing that used to just completely have me in its grip, even, I still feel its influence in my life, but it doesn't catch me in the same way. There's more ease around it. There's more space around it. And that kind of backwards-looking reflection can be very helpful. Because otherwise, in the midst of the process, feeling, oh, I'm still, I'm still, oh, this again. I can feel, it's easy to feel like we're not getting anywhere. When, our, when we've got tunnel vision. Oh, I've been meditating for so many years. I used to meditate with a distracted mind. Now... I still meditate with a distracted mind. (laughs) And we we might say, well, what's the point? But then when we look back over those years of spectacularly poor meditation practice, (laughs) we see, oh, something's been getting freed up. My my connection with life, my, my capacity to recognize what's going on with me, my ability to actually tune in to what's going on around me, my sensitivity to others, all of those have started to really change. And that's a much more helpful recognition than the recognition that I'm still meditating with a distracted mind. 
there's a kind of um, there's a very non-linear relationship between the quality of our meditation and the way our life transforms. And it's very helpful to remember that when you're being hard on yourself for the quality of your meditation. Last week, I was in London for a week teaching a course which was called Work, Sex, Money, Dharma. And it was really encouraging or offering an opportunity and a context of teachings and some support for people to look at... um, at how their practice did or sometimes didn't kind of enter into those areas of life. Those areas that we know are really charged areas of our life. There's a lot of our identity gets caught up with our working lives and what we do. It's a big part of our life. It's a lot to do with how we maintain ourselves. It's also a lot to do with our sense of value in the world and uh, contribution to the world, etc., there's a lot of energy gets caught up around sex. And in its slightly wider context, that meaning the world of our intimate relationships. We know that they're very charged areas. We get very identified. There's a lot of kind of strong uh, energy and investment and, uh, you know, a lot happens there. And in our relationship to money. In fact, the couple of times I've taught this course, it's been interesting to see that money is the one that people assume will be the most straightforward. Everyone knows they've got issues around their work. Everyone knows, everyone knows they've got issues around their relationship. But people don't necessarily think they've got so many issues around money. They just know they'd like a bit more. Right? And yet when we start to really explore the way we relate to money, the degree to which our relationship with money reflects our relationship with self-worth, with security, with trust in life, with a sense of kind of sufficiency or capacity... The ability to orientate generously to the world and and feel like I can contribute and support and provide or not. Or a sense of a lack of capacity to be buoyant, to be sufficient. A sense of of neediness, of panic, etc. So we met in this course in London over the two full days of the weekend and then every evening, Monday to Friday. In other words, meeting and practicing and exploring together while people were maintaining their working lives, maintaining their relationships. Rather than exploring life in, in the kind of removed context of a retreat like this, which gives this kind of rarefied opportunity to notice all the subtle layers that can be there in just one movement of thought, like we've been exploring this evening. And the kind of rarefied environment that really allows for that kind of subtlety and precision. And the other area uh, where we're bringing the same qualities, the same willingness to be present, 
the same capacity to look de- to look into what's happening, the same kind of deep curiosity, and the same wish to care for what's here, into these you know, charged areas of life. Some of you have been asking today the kind of classic Dharma chestnut question. When the retreat finishes, when I go back to my life, which always strikes me as a strange choice of words, because I wonder, what, have you left, did you leave it behind when you came here? Is that why you're so still in the meditation hall? Huh? You left your life behind? When I go back to my life, and it's kind of funny, but we might just reflect if that's the sense we have, that our life is out there somewhere. What does that mean about our wish to inhabit our life deeply? If some way, there's some way in which we conceive of our life as being elsewhere. It's easily done. When we're at work, we can conceive of our life as being at home in front of the TV with our feet up in the evening. When we get home, we put our feet up. And somehow I conceive of our life as being, you know, out there having fun, being with friends. We can almost always be conceiving of our life, our fulfillment, what we want being out there somewhere, somewhere else. And of course, whenever we get to that somewhere else, life seems to also go somewhere else. So, there's a thread that ties these pieces together. Whether in the refinement of this kind of very simplified environment that we have here called retreat, where we're doing the same things as the rest of our life, we're sitting around, walking around, eating a bit, using the bathroom when we need to, and going to bed at night. Same as the rest of our life but just a kind of simplified version. A simplified version that allows for this kind of rarefying, this subtleizing, this uh, being able to get inside uh, the subtleties of one movement of thought, like I just described. Or whether we're engaging in the kind of ch- big, charged areas of our life while we're living them. And I will speak more about all of that uh, between now and the end of the retreat. There's a thread that ties those two seemingly different, except they're the same situations, just maybe on a kind of scale of refinement. Those two situations and everything in between together. And that's this basic primary orientation of what's happening. That capacity to ask ourselves what's happening. And not in an intellectual way, but in a visceral way. Like we've been exploring here over these days. The orientation of what's happening by actually coming into it. What's happening from the inside. Secondary kind of reflection. How am I meeting it? What kind of reactivity might be going on? 
And I explored these three different pushes and pulls, the demand for the defence of and the distraction from. And thirdly, like we explored last night in terms of space, who do I think it's happening to? Who am I taking myself to be? Those three questions, what's happening? How am I meeting it? And who or what am I taking myself to be? What posture am I locked into? What, uh, what self-view is structuring my sense of things? Those three questions, it seems, we can ask ourselves limitlessly, ever freshly, again and again and again. Because no two moments are the same. There's never the same answer twice as to what's happening. There's sometimes very similar answers around how am I meeting it. But coming back to that similarity again and again offers us a chance to really see our patterns. And to see them, as in the way I was exploring earlier, to have to see clearly into our patterns is how they start to get loosened, how the layers start to unravel. And who am I taking myself to be? In what way have I superimposed the density of a self-view, of self-clinging, onto the space in which all this is happening. These reflections, this orientation, isn't defined by being on retreat, isn't defined by sitting cross-legged in what we call meditation, isn't defined by any place, person, situation, In this moment, in any moment, in every moment, if we want to orientate in a way that's going to open the doors to these natural qualities of peace, contentment, wisdom, freedom, sensitivity, care, responsiveness, then we'll be really well served to ask with as much presence, with as much clear seeing, with as much genuine curiosity as possible. What's happening right now? From the inside. How am I meeting it? in terms of any push or pull? Who am I taking myself to be? It would be a shame if we ever thought we had answers to these questions. But it would be to our deep and lasting and liberating benefit to ask these questions as deeply as we can, again and again, 
and see what gets revealed. See what gets freed up in heart and mind. So may our love of the truth and our own deep questioning lead us into freedom. Lead us into a mind that can respond wisely, a heart that can respond unencumberedly This is our opportunity.